Chapter Twenty Three, Part Six of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Three: The Hundred Years' War, Charles the Sixth, and the Dukes of Burgundy. Part six. On returning to Paris, the ambassadors, in presence of the king's council and a numerous assembly of clergy, nobility, and people, gave an account of their embassy and advised instant preparation for war without listening to a single word of peace. They loudly declared, says the monk of Saint-Denis, that King Henry's letters, though they were apparently full of moderation, had lurking at the bottom of them a great deal of perfidy and that this king all the time that he was offering peace and union in the most honeyed terms was thinking only how he might destroy the kingdom and was levying troops in all quarters henry v indeed in november fourteen fourteen demanded of his parliament a large subsidy which was at once voted without any precise mention of the use to be made of it and merely in the terms following for the defence of the realm of england and the security of the seas at the commencement of the following year henry resumed negotiations with france renouncing his claims to normandy anjou and maine but charles the sixth and his council adhered to their former offers on the sixteenth of april fourteen fifteen henry announced to a grand council of spiritual and temporal peers assembled at westminster his determination of setting out in person to go and by god's grace recover his heritage he appointed one of his brothers the duke of bedford to be regent in his absence and the peers ecclesiastical and laical applauded his design promising him their sincere cooperation thus france under a poor mad king and amidst civil dissensions of the most obstinate character found the question renewed for her of french versus english kingship and national independence versus foreign conquest on the fourteenth of august fourteen fifteen an english fleet having on board together with king henry v six thousand men-at-arms twenty-four thousand archers powerful war-machines and a multitude of artisans and small folk came to land near Arfleur, not far from the mouth of the seine it was the most formidable expedition that had ever issued from the ports of england the english spent several days in effecting their landing and setting up their siege train around the walls of the city it would have been easy says the monk of saint denis to hinder their operations and the inhabitants of the town and neighbourhood would have worked thereat with zeal if they had not counted that the nobility of the district and the royal army commanded by the constable charles d'alpre would come to their aid no one came the burgesses in the small garrison of arfleur made a gallant defence but on the twenty second of september not receiving from vernon where the king and the dauphin were massing their troops any other assistance than the advice to uh, take courage and trust to the king's discretion they capitulated and henry v after taking possession of the place advanced into the country with an army already much reduced by sickness 
looking for a favourable point at which to cross the Somme and push his invasion still farther. It was not until the 19th of October that he succeeded at Bethencourt, near Saint-Quentin. Charles the Sixth, who at that time had a lucid interval, after holding at Rouen a council of war, at which it was resolved to give the English battle, wished to repair with the Dauphin, his son, to Bapaume, where the French army had taken position, but his uncle, the Duke of Berry, having still quite a lively recollection of the Battle of Poitiers, fought fifty-nine years before, made opposition, saying, Better lose the battle than the king and the battle. All the princes of the royal blood, and all the flower of the French nobility, except the king and his three sons, and the dukes of Berry, Brittany, and Burgundy, joined the army. The dukes of Orléans and Bourbon, and the constable d'Albret, who was in command, sent to ask the king of England on what day and at what place he would be pleased to give them battle. "'I do not shut myself up in walled towns,' replied Henry. "'I shall be found at any time and anywhere ready to fight if any attempt be made to cut off my march.' The French resolved to stop him between Agincourt and Fremcourt, a little north of St. Paul and Esdin. The encounter took place on the 25th of October, 1415. It was a monotonous and lamentable repetition of the disasters of Crecy and Poitiers, disasters almost inevitable owing to the incapacity of the leaders and ever the same defects on the part of the French nobility, defects which rendered their valorous and generous qualities not only fruitless, but fatal never had that nobility been more numerous and more brilliant than in this premeditated struggle on the eve of the battle marshal de bocicot had armed five hundred new knights the greater part passed the night on horseback under arms on ground soaked with rain and men and horses were already distressed in the morning when the battle began it were tedious to describe the faulty manoeuvres of the french army and their deplorable consequences on that day never was battle more stubborn or defeat more complete and bloody eight thousand men of family amongst whom were a hundred and twenty lords bearing their own banners were left on the field of battle the duke of brabant the count of nevers the duke of bar the duke of alencon and the constable d'albret were killed the duke of orleans was dragged out wounded from under the dead when henry v after having spent several hours on the field of battle retired to his quarters he was told that the duke of orleans would neither eat nor drink he went to see him what fare cousin said he good my lord why will you not eat or drink i wish to fast cousin said the king gently make good cheer if god has granted me grace to gain the victory i know it is not owing to my deserts I believe that God wished to punish the French, and, if all I have heard is true, it is no wonder, for they say that never was seen disorder, licentiousness, sins, and vices, like what is going on in France just now. Surely God did well to be angry. It appears that the King of England's feeling was that also of many amongst the people of France. On reflecting upon this cruel mishap, says the monk of Saint-Denis, all the inhabitants of the kingdom men and women said in what evil days are we come into this world that we should be witnesses of such confusion and shame during the battle the eldest son of duke john the fearless the young count of charolais at that time nineteen who was afterwards philip the good duke of burgundy was at the castle of air where his governors kept him by his father's orders and prevented him from joining the king's army 
his servants were leaving him one after another to go and defend the kingdom against the english when he heard of the disaster at agincourt he was seized with profound despair at having failed in that patriotic duty he would fain have starved himself to death and he spent three whole days in tears none being able to comfort him when four years afterwards he became duke of burgundy and during his whole life he continued to testify his keen regret at not having fought in that cruel battle though it should have cost him his life and he often talked with his servants about that event of grievous memory when his father duke john received the news of the disaster at adincourt he also exhibited great sorrow and irritation he had lost by it his two brothers the duke of brabant and the count of nevers and he sent forthwith a herald to the king of england who was still at calais with orders to say that in consequence of the death of his brother the duke of brabant who was no vassal of france and held nothing in fief there he the duke of burgundy did defy him mortally fire and sword and sent him his gauntlet i will not accept the gauntlet of so noble and puissant a prince as the duke of burgundy was henry v's soft answer i am of no account compared with him if i have had the victory over the nobles of france it is by god's grace the death of the duke of brabant hath been an affliction to me but i do assure thee that neither i nor my people did cause his death take back to thy master his gauntlet if he will be at boulogne on the fifteenth of january next i will prove to him by the testimony of my prisoners and two of my friends that it was the french who accomplished his brother's destruction the duke of burgundy as a matter of course let his quarrel with the king of england drop and occupied himself for the future only in recovering his power in france he set out on the march for paris proclaiming everywhere that he was assembling his army solely for the purpose of avenging the kingdom chastising the english and aiding the king with his counsel and his forces the sentiment of nationality was so strongly aroused that politicians most anxious about their own personal interests and about them alone found themselves obliged to pay homage to it unfortunately it was so far as duke john was concerned only a superficial and transitory homage there is no repentance so rarely seen as that of selfishness in pride and power the four years which elapsed between the battle of agincourt and the death of john the fearless were filled with nothing but fresh and still more tragic explosions of hatred and strife between the two factions of the burgundians and armagnacs taking and losing retaking and relosing alternately their ascendancy with the king and in the government of france when after the battle of agincourt the duke of burgundy marched towards paris he heard almost simultaneously that the king was issuing a prohibition against the entry of his troops and that his rival the count of armagnac had just arrived and been put in possession of the military power as constable and of the civil power the superintendent-general of finance the duke then returned to burgundy and lost no time in recommencing hostilities against the king's government at one time he let his troops make war on the kings and pillage the domains of the crown at another he entered into negotiations with the king of england and showed a disposition to admit his claims to such and such a province and even perhaps to the throne of france he did not accede to the positive alliance offered him by henry but he employed the fear entertained of it by the king's government as a weapon against his enemies the count of armagnac on his side made the most relentless use of power against the duke of burgundy and his partisans he pursued them everywhere 
especially in paris with dexterous and pitiless hatred he abolished the whole organization and the privileges of the parisian butcherdom which had shown so favorable a leaning towards duke john and the system he established as a substitute was founded on excellent grounds appertaining to the interests of the people and of good order in the heart of paris but the violence of absolute power and of hatred robs the best measures of the credit they would deserve if they were more disinterested and dispassionate a lively reaction set in at paris in favour of the persecuted burgundians even outside of paris several towns of importance rheims chalot troyes auxerre amiens and rouen itself showed a favourable disposition towards the duke of burgundy and made a sort of alliance with him promising to aid him in reinstating the king in his freedom and lordship and the realm in its freedom and just rights the count of armagnac was no more tender with the court than with the populace of paris he suspected not without reason that the queen isabel of bavaria was in secret communication with and gave information to duke john moreover she was leading a scandalously licentious life at vincennes and one of her favourites louis de bosredon a nobleman of auvergne and her steward meeting the king one day on the road greeted the king cavalierly and hastily went his way charles the sixth was plainly offended the count of armagnac seized the opportunity and not only did he foment the king's ill-humour but talked to him of all the irregularities of which the queen was the centre and in which louis de bosredon was he said at that time her principal accomplice charles in spite of the cloud upon his mind could hardly have been completely ignorant of such facts but it is not necessary to be a king to experience extreme displeasure on learning that offensive scandals are most public and on hearing the whole tale of them the king carried away by his anger went straight to vincennes had a violent scene with his wife and caused bosredon to be arrested imprisoned and put to the question and he on his own confession it is said was thrown into the seine sewn up in a leather sack on which were inscribed the words let the king's justice run its course charles the sixth and armagnac did not stop there queen isabel was first of all removed from the council and stripped of all authority and then banished to tours where commissioners were appointed to watch over her conduct and not to let her even write a letter without their seeing it but royal personages can easily elude such strictness a few months after her banishment whilst the despotism of armagnac in the war between the king and the duke of burgundy was still going on queen isabel managed to send to the duke through one of her servants her golden seal which john the fearless well knew with a message to the effect that she would go with him if he would come to fetch her on the night of november the first fourteen seventeen the duke of burgundy hurriedly raised the siege of corbeil advanced with a body of troops to a position within two leagues from tours and sent the queen notice that he was awaiting her isabel ordered her three custodians to go with her to mass at the convent of marmoutier outside the city scarcely was she within the church when a burgundian captain hector de saveuse presented himself with sixty men at the door look to your safety madame said her custodians to isabel here is a large company of burgundians or english keep close to me replied the queen hector de saveuse at that moment entered and saluted the queen on behalf of the duke of burgundy where is he asked the queen 
he will not be long coming isabel ordered the captain to arrest her three custodians and two hours afterwards duke john arrived with his men-at-arms my dearest cousin said the queen to him i ought to love you above every man in the realm you have left all at my bidding and are come to deliver me from prison be assured that i will never fail you i quite see that you have always been devoted to my lord his family the realm and the commonwealth the duke carried the queen off to chartres and as soon as she was settled there on the twelfth of november fourteen seventeen she wrote to the good towns of the kingdom we isabel by the grace of god queen of france having by reason of my lord the king's seclusion the government and administration of this realm by irrevocable grant made to us by the said my lord the king and his council are come to chartres in company with our cousin the duke of burgundy in order to advise and ordain whatsoever is necessary to preserve and recover the supremacy of my lord the king on advice taken of the prudhomme vassals and subjects she at the same time ordered that master philip de morvilliers heretofore counsellor of the duke of burgundy should go to amiens accompanied by several clerics of note and by a registrar and that there should be held there by the queen's authority for the bailiwicks of amiens vermandoise tournai and the countship of ponthieu a sovereign court of justice in the place of that which there was at paris thus and by such a series of acts of violence and of falsehoods the duke of burgundy all the while making war on the king surrounded himself with hollow forms of royal and legal government whilst civil war was thus penetrating to the very core of the kingship foreign war was making its way again into the kingdom henry v after the battle of agincourt had returned to london and had left his army to repose and reorganize after its sufferings and its losses it was not until eighteen months afterwards on the first of august fourteen seventeen that he landed at touques not far from honfleur with fresh troops and resumed his campaign in france between fourteen seventeen and fourteen nineteen he successively laid siege to nearly all the towns of importance in normandy to cayenne bayeux falaise evreux coutances l'aigle saint-lô cherbourg etc etc some he occupied after a short resistance others were sold to him by their governors but when in the month of july fourteen eighteen he undertook the siege of rouen he encountered there a long and serious struggle rouen had at that time it is said a population of one hundred and fifty thousand souls which was animated by ardent patriotism the rouennaise on the approach of the english had repaired their gates their ramparts and their moats had demanded reinforcements from the king of france and the duke of burgundy and had ordered every person incapable of bearing arms or procuring provisions for ten months to leave the city twelve thousand old men women and children were thus expelled and died either round the place or whilst roving in misery over the neighbouring country poor women gave birth unassisted beneath the walls and good compassionate people in the town drew up the new-born in baskets to have them baptised and afterwards lowered them down to their mothers to die together fifteen thousand men of city militia four thousand regular soldiers three hundred spearmen and as many archers from paris and it is not quite known how many men-at-arms sent by the duke of burgundy defended rouen for more than five months amidst all the usual sufferings of strictly besieged cities as early as the beginning of october says monstrelet they were forced to eat horses dogs cats and other things not fit for human beings but they nevertheless made frequent sorties rushing furiously upon the enemy 
to whom they caused many a heavy loss. Four gentlemen and four burgesses succeeded in escaping and going to Beauvais to tell the king and his council about the deplorable condition of their city. The council replied that the king was not in a condition to raise the siege, but that Rouen would be relieved within on the fourth day after Christmas. It was now the middle of December. The Rouennais resigned themselves to be waiting a fortnight longer, but when that period was over, they found nothing arrive but a message from the Duke of Burgundy recommending them to treat for their preservation with the King of England as best they could. They asked to capitulate. Henry V demanded that all the men of the town should place themselves at his disposal. When the commonalty of Rouen heard this answer, they all cried out that it were better to die altogether sword in hand against their enemies than place themselves at the disposal of yonder king, and they were for shoring up with planks a loosened layer of the wall inside the city, and, having armed themselves and joined all of them together, men, women, and children, for setting fire to the city, throwing down the said layer of wall into the moats, and getting them gone by night, whither it might please God to direct them. Henry V was unwilling to confront such heroic despair, and on the 13th of January, 1419, he granted the Rouennais a capitulation, from which seven persons only were accepted. Robert Delivet, the Archbishop's vicar-general, who from the top of the ramparts had excommunicated the foreign conqueror, Dudetot, Bailey of the city, Jean Segneau, the mayor, Alain Blanchard, the captain of the militia crossbowmen, and three other burgesses. The last named, the hero of the siege, was the only one who paid for his heroism with his life. The bailey, the mayor, and the vicar bought themselves off. On the 19th of January, at midday, the English king and army made their solemn entry into the city. It was 215 years since Philip Augustus had won Rouen by conquest from John Lackland, king of England, and happily his successors were not to be condemned to deplore the loss of it very long. End of chapter 23, part 6